Amen. You can be seated. If you're a guest with us, my name's Al. I'm the lead pastor here. It's an honor and privilege to preach God's Word. We're continuing our sermon series in ancient paths. We've been looking at different spiritual disciplines. Today we're looking at uh, evangelism. And we had a, a diverse pl- a ver- passage planned out, what we're going to preach through. Felt like the Lord uh, leading us to a different direction this morning, and so we changed it up. And so we're going to be in John chapter 4. Uh, we'll still talk about evangelism. Uh, and so if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. We're going to cover verse 1 through 42. That's a lot. I went over last uh, service, and so I'm going to just talk faster this service. And so, uh, you know, that's how it's going to go. Uh, but what I want us to see in John 4, oftentimes it's preached and we look at uh, it from the context of the woman um, at the well and Jesus' mercy towards her, which we're going to talk about. We'll get in. He has a lot of mercy towards her, and we will talk extensively about that. But I want to look at this as we're looking at the subject of evangelism. I want to look at Jesus is our model for evangelism. Most people, when it comes to evangelism, Evangelism, they want to they find some other person that's not in the scriptures to figure out how they should evangelize. It's weird to me that we would do that. We should look at Jesus. Jesus is who we worship. Jesus is who we serve. We, we, Jesus is who we follow. We should evangelize like Jesus. And so we're going to look at him and how he uh, you know, goes out on a mission to meet this woman and to share the gospel and invite her to know uh, him and to be saved. And so we're going to look at his uh, uh, we're going to look at Jesus and we're going we're to follow evangelism in, in, in regards to his pattern and precedent that we see here in John chapter 4. And so the big idea with what evangelism is, this word, uh, it's a Christian word that, that uh, is now a Christian word. It wasn't originally, but it is now. It just means telling of news, good news. Um, historically, what it was was uh, when an army would win a war, they would have a, a guy ride back on horseback to the city uh, and tell the people, hey, we won the war. It's just news. We won. The other guys lost. So celebrate. If you're, you were enslaved, now you're free. This is what the gospel is. It's, it's telling the world, hey, guess what? Jesus has won. He's victorious. He's conquered Satan, Satan, sin, death, and the grave. He's risen victorious. He's alive. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's the new king. Uh, submit to him. Trust him. Believe in him. If you are a slave to your sin, you cannot be free from your sin. That's the news. It's just news. And what the God, the Holy Spirit, does is he comes behind that news and he empowers that news to change lives and hearts so that people believe it. They see it, they see Jesus, and they look at the cross, and they see the cross of Christ, and they really believe that, it, that they see it, that it's my sin, uh, and that's my Savior. Jesus died for me, in my place, for my sin. And so some of you, you, you may uh, believe that intellectually, uh, but I hope that you would experience that transformatively today. That you would see, you would gaze upon the cross of Christ and see that it is, it is your sin that holds Jesus on the cross. Therefore, if it's your sin that holds him on the cross, through faith and repentance and trust in him, he can be your savior. You can have your past sin, your present sin, your future sin dealt with, done. And this is what he's going to offer this woman that we see today. So some of you know the story. But I want you to see when it comes to evangelism, it's just telling that good news. The good news about the person and work of Jesus. And so we see it, uh, if, if, imagine if there was an army that won a war and they just tell you we won, like you're like, that's good news. You have one of two options. You can believe it and go, okay, I'm free, I'm going to live free. Or you can not believe it and stay enslaved in, in, in your chains. And so when we look at Jesus right here in John chapter 4, starting off his, his evangelistic effort to meet this woman, I want us to see the first thing is that he has evangelism uh, and we, we see a divine appointment. We see a divine appointment. Jesus is going to meet with this woman on purpose. How do we know it? Well, let's look at verse 1 through 6 to see the context here. And so we see, oh, no, Jesus really came to meet this person on purpose. It says this in uh, John chapter 4, verse 1. 
It says, now when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, uh, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, uh, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, worry, or wearied uh, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So let me explain some things here and some of the characters at play in, the, in this open, these opening scene of, of, of Jesus' evangelism that we're going to look at today. Uh, what we need to know is that the, uh, in the north, there was the city where Jesus is headed to. Um, it's called Galilee. That's where he's headed to. Currently, he was in uh, Judea, which was in the south. So, so Galilee's in the north. Judea's in the south. In the middle of that is this, this area, this place called Samaria. And so in the right sandwich in the middle is, is Samaria. So Jews lived in Galilee, and Jews lived in uh, Judea, and Samaritans lived in Samaria. Why does this matter? Well, because at this point in history, the Samaritans and Jews despised one another. They didn't like each other. They didn't get along. They didn't want to be around each other. Typically, what would happen is if a Jew was passing from uh, Judea north to, Samar- or to Galilee, what they would do is go around Samaria. Actually, not go through it but go around it. It says here in our text that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He doesn't have to. He had to because he has a mission. He had a divine appointment. He had to because he was led by the, the Holy Spirit, and he had to go to, for the scene that we're going to see today. And so some of you, uh, we need to understand this, that you don't know why you're here. You think you're here because your friend brought her, you because you wanted to. God has something for you to this today. This lady does not know that she's about to meet Jesus. Some of you didn't realize you're coming here, you're going to have an encounter with Jesus. That's, that's all. He knew about it. You may not have. And so what I want us to see here, that Jesus knows what he is doing. He's headed to Samaria on purpose. He's passing through uh, 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 you know, cultural, geographical, uh, social, political lines in order to meet with this woman. Here's what we need to know. Jesus will overcome any obstacles to redeem and save his people. He doesn't care. He's going to overcome them all. So it doesn't matter your sin, your past, your shortcomings, your thoughts, your failures, your attempts at following Jesus. What you need is Jesus to overcome all of that and get to you. And he's willing and able to do that. So that's what we're going to see today. And so this, this hatred that the Samaritans and Jews had for one another was rooted in, in a backstory historically. Uh, we see the characters here mentioned Jacob and, this, and, this, and his son Joseph. And that goes all the way back to one of the patriarchs of Israel. We have Abraham, you have Isaac, and you have Jacob. Jacob, the third patriarch of Israel, had a son. Uh, well, first, he, had a, he, he got a plot of land uh, and he had a well. He built a well there and that's the, that's the well where we're going to see here in the text. That's what we see. He, he built a well. He raised his family. They used the well to, to water and uh, the, you drink water and then water their crops. And this, is, this was the center of their city. Um, this is the exact place where we find that uh, Jesus is going to show up. But then later he had a son. He had many sons, actually. Uh, and then he, is, he had a son named Joseph. Joseph was sold out by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. Not a good brotherly thing to do. Uh, but that ends up happening. God works that evil situation out for good. In doing so, he rises up in Pharaoh's court in Egypt. And God uses this one man, the only Christian in the entire nation, 
nation of, 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 of Egypt to redeem um, this and, and save literally a nation from famine. So God uses uh, Joseph in this regard. In doing so, he had favor with the Pharaoh, and the, and the Hebrews got to come into the land of Egypt, and they got to enjoy the, uh, the, the wisdom of God and the, and, the, and the benevolent care of God through, through the crops that Joseph had set aside, and he fed the nation of Israel. In the known world, everyone is literally saved because of, of Joseph. But in doing so, God's people are now, they find themselves in Egypt. Well, the next few pharaohs down the line no longer worship the God of the Bible. They reject the God of the Bible. And now they, instead of uh, loving the Hebrew people, God's people, uh, they hate them. They despise them. They enslave them. And in doing so, uh, God is not pleased with that. He sends a man named uh, Moses who, set, who he uses to tell the pharaoh to let his people go. Eventually, God's people do leave Egypt. Um, and as they're leaving Egypt, uh, uh, before then, uh, or back in, when Joseph was still alive, he said, because he died in Egypt, he said, if I ever get out of this land, if, we, if, my, if the, my family, we ever leave Egypt, we take my bones, keep my bones, take them to the homeland. And so eventually God's people do get set free from Egyptian slavery. And one of the things they do, which is important, they take his bones and they go to this place called Sychar, refined in Samaria. And his bone, he's laid to rest with his, his, his family and there, and there is his well that he had built for his family. So th- this, is, this is geographic, historically, what has happened. Well, how there became tension between the Samaritans and the Jews happened in somewhere around 720 B.C., the Assyrians came to attack uh, Israel in, in Samaria and, and the Jewish people living in the region um, of Sychar, they were invaded by the Assyrians. What the Assyrians then did is they uprooted some, not all, of the Hebrew people and took them into exile. And so uh, they destroyed the temple and some of the, 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 the Jewish uh, Hebrew people who were left, they still sought to worship God. They wanted to worship God, uh, but the temple was destroyed. And those who were taken into captivity, uh, many of them we see in Second Kings um, uh, what is it, Second Kings, I think, 17, they began to, instead of uh, be, be distinct against the Assyrians, they began to blend and uh, worship the gods of the Assyrians as well. So they, they participated in things like pagan sacrifices, child sacrifice, worshiping multiple gods. And so that ends up, what ends up happening is God eventually sends a leader, uh, two leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah, to rebuild the temple and restore worship in, uh, in, 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 in God's land. And so what happens in that moment is we see the Samaritans, they rejected the God of the Bible. So they blended their religion. And then the Jews are coming back and we're looking to worship uh, the God of the Bible, rebuild the temple. Well, now they're at odds because they both worship different gods. And so the, the Jews who held true to following the God of the Bible despised the, the Samaritans for blending with other religions. And so they just hated each other. And so when the Jews rebuilt the temple, uh, the, they cut the Samaritans out of that. So Samaritans were left with no temple. So what they did was they found a mountain. It's a mountain called Mount Gerizim, and they built their own temple there. So the the Samaritans had their own temple, and the Jews had their own temple in Jerusalem. They they, they were were in two separate places, one on the mountain, one in the city. And so at this point in history where Jesus is coming into this land, the Samaritans uh, have their place of worship. The Jews have their place of worship. This is all going to come into effect here later in the story. But Jesus uh, uh, comes into a city where the animosity is high. Jews won't even be in the presence of Gentiles. And it is wild, and they don't like each other. But Jesus doesn't care because everyone needs Jesus. So he walks right into Samaria to meet this woman at the well. So he didn't have to pass through. 
because of uh, uh, normal customs, he had to pass through Samaria to meet with this woman. So this is the divine appointment. And so what I, what I want us to see is he's meeting with this woman on purpose. On purpose. I want you to see that in your life, if, if you believe that God is sovereign, and he rules over time, history, and space, you believe what he says in Acts where he says God determines the, the nation and boundaries and places in which we live. If you believe those things, then you must also believe that every person you encounter, every uh, uh, encounter you have with an individual is a divine appointment. God's overseeing it. You got to see that you're here on purpose. God has the reason why you're here. You got to see when you encounter someone in HEB, the, the, in the line, God has you there on purpose. You have, you have what C.S. Lewis calls, he says, there's no mere mortals. No mere mortals. We don't encounter a human that's just merely a mortal being. We're all beings that will live for eternity. All beings who will live for eternity. And so the question is not, will you live for eternity? The question or not is, where in eternity will you live? Will you live with God and his people, worshiping him? Will you wor- or you be separated apart from him with the wrath and torment of Jesus forever? That's the reality. We will live forever. And so that means that when we're talking to individuals, we're not talking about just mere human mortal souls. We're talking about divine souls that will have, or souls that will have a, a, a divine reality, an eternal reality either with Jesus or apart from him. So that means who we encounter, like it should change the way it, we think about our daily interactions. And so what we see here, additionally, is that Jesus shows up and it's about the sixth hour. Why is that important? Well, this shows us to, uh, why, uh, a lot about this woman that we're about to meet. See, the sixth hour was the heat of the day. This is like 12 noon. If you've ever been to the Middle East, uh, it's, it's hot. I know we just all walked out from outside and you, between your car and the front door, like you started to sweat. I get it. They got it too. We wouldn't want to go out in the middle of the day right now and go to the well and, and you know, get us some water. We don't do any sort of uh, heavy labor uh, or uh, blue collar work right now. It's too hot, correct? Well, in the Middle East, it's a little bit hotter sometimes, oftentimes. In Dubai, guess what? They have, they have uh, air-conditioned, air-conditioned bus stops. So people don't die while they're waiting for the bus because they're outside. Like, that's how hot it is. So there's no reason on earth that any woman or any person would be going to the well at the the middle of the day other than they they wanted to avoid people. Because everyone who would go to the well would go in the morning. Go to the morning. They they, they would go in the morning. So the only reason why this woman is going to be taking this trip to the well is because she wants to avoid people. What we're going to see is that she has a life that is ruled by her guilt and her shame. We're also going to see here that uh, uh, if you've ever been in a small town um, or in in a town where, like, you know, everyone knows uh, what everyone else is uh, thinking, saying, the gossip. Have you ever been there? You've been there? So, like, this lady is is the gossip, the talk of the town. She doesn't want to go because she doesn't want to be around people. She doesn't want to be known for the, the, the life she is living. She's living a, a double life. She, she's ashamed. She's afraid. She, she doesn't like her circumstances or situation she finds herself in. So she's going to the well to get water, middle of the day, to avoid people. So Jesus shows up and he wants to meet with her. He knows she's coming. Moreover, I want us to see that even when, when, when God told J, uh, Jacob, to build this well before Joseph, uh, but Jacob to build this well. Jacob had no clue that if, that that you know half a you know a thousand years later that this Jesus was going to have this gospel conversation with this woman at this well. I need you to see what God is doing in you right now. 
by the grace of God, hopefully will have impact for legacies, generations in the future. I want you to see the work you're doing now it matters, not just today, but it matters for tomorrow. It matters for, the, for 100,000 years after you were gone. Joseph was a patriarch. Jacob, or J- Jacob was a patriarch. He had his son continued his legacy and lineage that began with Abraham. We are still doing the same thing to this day. And so what was once used to merely get water is now going to be a place, a geographic location where this woman is going to get living water. She's going to get salvation. Divine appointment is the first thing we've got to see. Second thing is uh, evangelism takes a conversation, a gospel conversation. Gospel simply means good news. Evangelism must offer good news about Jesus. So Jesus is going to offer this woman who we're about to meet good news about himself. It says it this in, in verse 7. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to buy, uh, away into the city to buy food. So his disciples are in the city buying lunch. He's at the well waiting for this woman. She shows up. When she gets there, Jesus says, Hey, I'm thirsty. Can you give me a drink of water? The Samaritan woman responds. She says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Like how, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. See, we talked about why that would be so. So she sees this, and she's like, this doesn't make sense. Why have you gone to this great length to, to sit here, and why are you talking to me? More than that, why are you asking me for water? Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. See, she said, hey, Jesus is saying, you don't even know who I am, uh, but if you did, you would have asked me for something. See, the reality is uh, she has no clue he, who she has encountered. Some of you have come today and you have no clue who Jesus is. So right now you're like the woman, you're like, I don't know who this guy is. Can you tell me? He's going to reveal more about who he is as time goes on. But I want us to see here that, he, that, that he, Jesus quickly turned this conversation away from just physically being about water. He's starting to turn it towards himself. He turns the conversation towards himself. See, I need you to see, he's talking about water here. Later in other times, he'll talk about food. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the the source of living water. Anything that Jesus sees and encounters, he will use to then turn it into a conversation and talk about him. I need us to follow his example as well. In our evangelism, we must see that all of our conversations, not that every conversation has to be about the gospel, but I need us to be on alert and aware that when we have conversations, there are things that are happening in the conversation that we could, if we had eyes to see and ears to hear, turn and and, and allow us to speak to the heart of an individual. They're simply talking about water. And Jesus is going to offer her the greatest need for her soul, living water. That's what he offers true satisfaction, true rest. We've talked frequently over and over and throughout the series that we find our, we are restless apart from Christ. Our souls are restless. This woman is restless. You and I are restless until we taste the living water that Jesus has to offer. The woman responds. She says to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Just imagine this, like, what are you doing, man? Like, you can't draw water. It's too deep. You're not going to be able to get out of there. She's just really thinking practical here. She's like, how is this going to work? You say you offer living water. I don't even know what that means, but I don't know if that's a new brand. I don't know if Costco's carrying it now. Like, I don't know what this is, but it doesn't make sense how you're going to get it to me. And so she says you can't even draw water. The well is too deep. And then she says this. 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you greater than the patriarch Jacob? Answer, yes. He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Imagine this. This well is now known at this moment when she's sitting there as, 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 a, as a memorial to the patriarch Jacob. When Jesus saves her, this well will no longer be simply just about the patriarch Jacob. It will be about Jesus because Jacob's life was actually pointing to Jesus. This well is about Jesus. This moment is about her meeting Jesus. Your life, who is it about? Is it pointing to Jesus, your legacy, your lineage, your future? Who is it pointing to? Is it about Jesus? So we see happening here. So she sees it through the lens of the patriarch Jacob. Jesus is going to make it clear that it's about him. And he says this to her. Everyone who drinks of this water, that even, yes, came from the patriarch. She's like, he's like, I actually know him. We've wrestled. I broke his side. Like, I won. Like, he, he, he remembers Jacob. He remembers him. He renamed him Israel. I know the guy you're talking about. And if you drink from this water, you will be thirsty again, he says. What he's essentially saying is what you're turning to in this life and what you and I are turning to in this life, uh, if it's not Jesus, it won't satisfy. It won't satisfy. In the same way that which you need water every single day, and your throat gets thirsty, and you get parched, and you need a drink. You walk outside, you get exhausted, you're tired. You need water. In the same way that that happens, and, and that water only satisfies momentarily, Jesus is pointing to an eternal reality that if we don't have true satisfaction in Him, we will find other things to satisfy our souls. We'll, for a moment, it's our friends. For a moment, it's our finances. When those don't pan out, we move to new friends, new finances, new job. We keep trying to find satisfaction in this life. And we'll never find it until we find it in Jesus. She doesn't know that yet. So she's just thinking, oh man, it's all about water. And so I, she's, and Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I give, in verse 14, will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What Jesus is offering here is not physical water. He's talking about a spiritual water. What he's offering is not just a, a, a metaphor. He's offering himself. He's offering himself. He says that this water is going to well up to eternal life. Where the eternal life is defined later on in, chap, in John, in chapter 17, verse 3. And it says this, that Jesus defining it says eternal life is not just living forever. He says eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ in whom he has sent. See, eternal life is not about getting to heaven. How many of you, that's what you grow up and you're like, eternal life just means live forever. It wasn't from the Bible that you got that verse. It just needs you to know that. So John 3.16, that's awesome. I agree with John 3.16. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. We agree with that. Now define it. Define eternal life. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that eternal life just means living in heaven. When Jesus himself defines eternal life, he says that it's knowing God. Knowing God. Now, in this moment, in the moment in which you believe, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life in Jesus. Knowing God now. Will you live forever? Absolutely. You will live forever, regardless of if you're a Christian or not. You just won't live forever in the presence of God. And so the worst thing in human history is to be to spend eternity apart from God. 
So right now, if you're a Christian, I need you to understand right now, no matter how hard your life is, how miserable your circumstances are, how, how frustrating you find your, your life to be, this is as close to hell as you'll ever be if you're a Christian. But if you are not a Christian, this is as close to heaven as you will ever be now on earth. There's a great call for repentance, to trusting Jesus who offers this new eternal life. This life is like water that wells up and it gives you knowledge of God. Eternal life. Knowing Jesus. Knowing his forgiveness. Knowing his salvation. Knowing his redemption. Knowing his righteousness. Knowing Jesus. He's offering her himself. Sin atonement. New life, new hope, redemption. That's what's being offered. At a soul level, that's what we long for. She responds in verse 15. She doesn't fully get it yet. She says, the woman says to him, sir, give me this water. It's, but, he, but she knows enough to know I want that. Whatever you're offering sounds good. And she says, I want, give me this water. And here's why though. So I will never be thirsty or have to come to draw water. See, I need you to understand, the issue here is not about drinking water. She's not like, I'm just kind of over water. If I could just move to sodas, that'd be good. So if we can just, you know, give me the you know, cleansing here and taste for something else, I'm, I'm glad. It's not about her, like, you know, caring about uh, uh, the, the digestion of water. The issue is that she doesn't want to come to the well anymore because she's shunned, she's the talk of the town, she's miserable, she's ashamed, she sees her sin, she sees her guilt. She doesn't want to keep having to go to the well as a constant reminder every single day in the heat of the day of, 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 of her past mistakes and her present sin. She's ashamed, so she's hiding. This is what we do when we're ashamed of our sin. We want to be alone. And so God doesn't want us to, to just be alone in our shame, so he sends Jesus to rescue her, just as he sends Jesus to rescue even today. And so she wants here, though, her shame to be covered, but she doesn't yet want Jesus. So some of you wrestle with this because you're like, I want Jesus only because I don't want to spend eternity apart from God. I don't want a, a conscious torment in hell. I need you to start. That's a good place to start. She doesn't want her shame. You don't want to experience the consequences of your sin. Some of you are just so aware of the consequences of your past sin. It's ruined your marriage. It's ruined your life. It's ruined, it's ruined so much. And you're like, I don't like my sin. I need you to hear this. This is a great place to start. This is where it starts. A holy dissatisfaction for your sin and the effects of your sin. But I need you to know the gospel offers something more. The, the, it's not just enough to not want the consequences of your sin. you got to want Jesus. So this is where the conversation continues. And what we must see is that in our evangelism, in our everyday conversations, where we're finding opportunities and ways to talk about Jesus. We want to introduce people to Jesus. And we want to find ways to see what are their chief desires and how can we, we, we see those moments and point them toward the, the God who truly satisfies and so she doesn't really want anything other than to not have to keep going to the well at noon because it's, it's hot, it's miserable. She's, it reminds her of her guilt and her shame. But what Jesus does in this moment is offer himself. He offers himself the, the true fountain of living water. 
As it continues, what we see next is that evangelism, it not only requires a conversation that shares good news, hope, redemption, which Jesus shared in verse 7 through 15, but now we see in verse 16 through 26, Jesus is going to talk about sin. He's going to talk about a need for cleansing. He's going to talk about faith in him alone. And so this is what our evangelism must include. It must include a confession of sin, cleansing, faith in Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband. So she's like, let's do this. Give me this living water. I'm down. I'm sold. I'm here for it. So what is Jesus' first thing? He says, okay, go call your husband and tell him to come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus answered, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have right now is not your husband. See, coming to faith in Jesus requires a full confession of your sin. She's a half-truth teller right here. Many of us, this is, a, this is how we live our lives. We just want people to know half the truth. We'll tell the story so we're not lying technically because you know, she's not technically lying. I don't have a husband. It's like, yeah, you don't have a husband, but the man you're with right now is not your husband, and you've had five. You are correct that you don't have one. You have five. See, what she was trying to do was not just be precise in her, 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 question, her response to Jesus' answer. She's trying to cover her guilt and her shame. And it might be that she's trapped in a relationship. The man she's with is not her husband. Why? Is it because she ran off with another dude? Is it because that she's still married and that uh, she's living with another guy and that she feels shamed in that and there's some legal battle going on and they don't want to, she doesn't want to share all that uh, with Jesus and she's just trying to protect herself. Or maybe she's with a dude that's abusive and threatening and she can't get out of the situation, the circumstance, and she's like, it's just better for me to just not tell anyone because I just am stuck in this environment and I need help. And I don't know who to ask. She feels shame. She feels guilty. She feels trapped. But Jesus loves her so much that he's not willing to just overlook that. He wants to enter the mess with her. And so he addresses it. The first thing is like, hey, I want some living water. Okay, cool. Go get your husband. Have him come here. His issue isn't further shaming her, his, his issue is, to, or he's saying that, hey, your issue is that your, your identity is found in, in who you are, your lifestyle, the sin that you've committed, the sin that's been done against you, and you are trapped, and if you need cleansing, and you need help, and you need redemption, and you need salvation, we've got to bring that stuff to light so I can heal it. So many of us don't have the powerful, the cleansing power of Jesus because we lie. We tell half-truths. I need you to know, she is lying. Half-truth is a lie. Not telling the whole story is a lie. And so what we see here is that believing in Jesus requires a full confession of sin, our sinful state. I'm not partly guilty, I'm completely guilty. But Jesus is compassionate. He's not hearing her and going, hey, you know what, you don't have one husband, you have five, like it's really bad. And, and, you know, I'm going to, shame on you. And he's like, this is your situation. Let's talk about the problem so we can talk about the solution. He's willing to enter the messiness of her life. See, sin separates us from God. And Jesus wants to see that she is living a life separated from God. He wants to enter to the, into the mess and then offer her a, a, a redemption. He wants to remove her guilt and shame, offer her salvation and cleansing. See, this is what it is. We're, we're told that if you confess your sins, 
Your, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And to what? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you want cleansing, you got to confess your sins to God. All of them clearly, not half-truths. So he, he, he calls her to speak the truth, to confess and reveal what's, what's going on behind the scenes in her heart, in her life. Verse 19. She, she's amazed. She, so she says to him, look, look how she's not offended. See, when God's working on your heart, you don't get offended when you get your sin exposed. If, 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 if your sin's being exposed and you start getting upset, we know your heart's heart. Her, she's like, you're right. I'm guilty. See, we oftentimes, when we hear that, that we're guilty and we're wrong, we get upset, we get mad at God, we get mad at other Christians. I think it was uh, Luther who said, preach in such a way that, uh, they, that the, the congregation either hates their sin or they hate you, the preacher. Like, I get that. I get that a lot. But if, if, if God is changing, working on your heart, you're hearing that you're guilty of your sin and, and that you, you've lived a duplicitous life and you're hiding and you're in your shame, and you're going, I am. I am. I'm bringing it forward willfully. Because this is her response. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She's like, you're not wrong. I don't know how you knew that. She says this, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you say that in Jer- it's in Jerusalem that is the place where people ought to worship. Essentially what she is saying is that I'm guilty, you're right. Okay, how do I get clean? Am I supposed to go to the, the, the temple on the mountain or the temple in the city? Am I supposed to you know, worship Allah, Muhammad? Like, who am I supposed to worship? Jesus? I don't know. I'm guilty. I'm aware of my sin. Where do I go? Do I go to church? Do I go to the, the temple? Where do I go? The answer is you go to Jesus. You go nowhere. You go to Jesus. And this is what's going on right here. She's asking, how can I be clean? I'm guilty. So when we're sharing the gospel, when the Holy Spirit's working on an individual's heart and he's changing them, they go, I'm guilty. They don't argue back. They're not offended. I'm guilty. You're right. My sin has been exposed. My shame has been exposed. Now, what do I do? What do I do? So in sharing the gospel, we, we confess our sin, but we also should declare it in such a way where we understand there's a need for cleansing. This lady is like, I need cleansing. Which temple do I go to? Who's, who, where do I go make sacrifice? Jesus answers in verse 21. It says to our woman, believe me, because it's in him. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know, but we, what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. See, notice what he's saying. He's not saying to the Samaritan woman, hey, salvation is for the Jews. She would have expected him to say that salvation is for us and not you. See, so far too often people think, Christians think salvation is for us and not for you. No, salvation is for you if you repent and believe. It's for anyone who would trust in the name of Jesus. Salvation is from the Jews for all who would believe. Refusing to believe in the one who can save is your fault. That is you. Jesus is saying, hey, forget about the mountain, Mount Gerizim. Forget about Jerusalem. It's about me. Salvation has come from the Jews to seek and save all those who are lost. He says, verse 23, 
But the hour is coming, actually it is now here. Meaning in this moment when he's talking to her, that the, the hour is here for that salvation. When the true worshipers will, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. What he is telling her is that there is a truth you must believe. There is truth and there is lies. There is false and there is true. Jesus is the truth, he tells us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. How do you get to the Father? Not by Gerizim and not by Jerusalem temple, but by Jesus. If you're not a, if you're not a Christian, the way you get saved is Jesus. This is how. If you're a Christian, the only one who can sustain you is Jesus. We worship Jesus. The issue here is that there's something true to believe in, and that being Jesus, and he must be worshipped. Those are the, the issues here is worship. Right now, she's like, I'm guilty. Where do I go to worship? I go to the temple. You go and worship Jesus. And so we need to believe the truth to be set free, and we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to worship Jesus, which means we must confess our sin, exchange our false worship for true worship, come forward with, with confession of sin to the Lord God, beg and, and plead and recognize our need for cleansing, and cling to Jesus Christ, our only hope. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that, the Messiah, that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. But when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. See, she gets very, it's all the way close to the end. She sees her sin. She needs her need for a savior. She sees that she needs cleansing. And, and, and she's like, all right, I get it. The Messiah is the one who can cleanse me. And she's like, ah, we just got to wait, I guess. And he's saying, no, it's here. The Messiah is here. I'm, he's looking at her, saying, I'm the one who can cleanse you. Jesus has gone out of his way, sought her. So hopefully by this time she's realizing like, oh man, you actually went, you could have gone around somewhere, you went here for this purpose, to, to offer me this living water? He's come on purpose. Some of you, you're, you're wondering, how will I know if I'm being saved? This is what you see with her life. You see, she didn't, she met a guy, she heard about Jesus, didn't know much about him, asked a couple questions, got real serious about her life, realized she was a sinner, and she's like, I'm guilty, openly confesses her sin, agrees with God that she is guilty, then says, I need cleansing, where do I go? And now she hears that she must be cleansed by Jesus Christ alone, and she receives that. She receives it. It's what she receives. We're going to find later that uh, how she lives changed. But I need us to see the Holy Spirit works in tandem with us sharing this news that exposes sin and that calls people to repent and trust Jesus. This is why we believe in, in, in the old tried and true message of the, the gospel, the, the old same message of the Old Testament and the New Testament. All the prophets of old, repent, repent, repent. John the Baptist, repent. Jesus' first sermon, repent. Uh, in Acts, we see in chapter 2, we see uh, uh, Peter, his first sermon, repent. Everywhere in the scripture, there's a call to repentance and to trust the God of the Bible. His name is Jesus. And when we preach that message, people get saved. To edit that means that no salvation is being delivered to the people. Only condemnation at best. To believe in anything different that would require or that would edit repentance from Christianity is not Christianity. 
It's damnable. It is. And so who needs saving today? If you need saving, you've got to realize you need a Savior. You're guilty. Jesus is your only hope. Who here today is tired of living the double life? Who's here tired of covering up their guilt and shame? Tired of trying to make up for their past sin? Trying to just fix everything that you broke? Come to Jesus and find rest, salvation, forgiveness, cleansing. Like this girl can't fix her life. She's five husbands in. The guy she's with, she doesn't know how, like there's an issue there. What she doesn't need is some self-help and some way out. She needs a life change. She needs her sins forgiven. She needs to be changed and transformed. See, our evangelism must include this bad news so that we can offer some good news. And so the reason why Jesus can, can speak to her in such a way and expose her guilt and enter into the mess with her is because later he's going to go and bleed out on the cross in her place for her sins. He's going to atone for her sin so he can offer her salvation. So evangelism, our evangelism must expose sin and it must demonstrate our need for cleansing and offer Jesus who is our only hope to cleanse us, forgive us, redeem us, adopt us, ultimately to change us. And what we see here next is that she has changed. And truly changed people bring other people to Jesus. They can't help it. That's what we see here. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman and said to no one, or and, said, and no one said, what do you seek and why are you talking with her? See, I love this about the disciples. They, they, they see Jesus working and they don't really know how to contain it. They don't really know what to say about it, so they keep their mouth shut. I wish Christians would learn this. So many Christians see God work, and they're like, oh, that's not true. That can't be revival because, you know, I wasn't there, and I'm the, you know, the head spokesman for all revival. And Get on the internet, say a bunch of stupid stuff. Just shut up. Be like the disciples. I'm going to just watch, see what happens. I guarantee if it's not real, it'll prove itself. It will. Jesus, they're like, I don't know what's going on. They're, so they're just going to be quiet. Watch. Oh, that the church could, could grow in some humility to just watch God work and not try to fit him into our theological paradigms. Just let's watch him work. Let's watch him work. And so the woman left her jar of water and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. See, the, you want to know evidence that Jesus changed her? She brought people to him. The people she was hiding from, she went and talked to and said, hey, come meet my new friend. His name's Jesus. Evidence that Jesus has changed your life? Hear this. The evidence that Jesus has changed your life is that you want to bring other people to Jesus for their life to be changed. It's an indictment on the entire church. It really is. Because here's the reality. Some of you, if you had the, you know, if, you, if I had the cure to cancer, I'd tell other people so they can come get the cure. You have the cure for eternal sickness. You have the only way sins can be forgiven. Why would you withhold this information from anybody? Well, they're going to think I'm narrow-minded and bigoted. Yeah, until they believe it, then they're going to think they're, you're the greatest person who shared this news. See, this woman isn't arguing with Jesus. She just received the news. Some people will hate you. Some people will, will worship God. Who cares? 
It's not your job to change the hearts of people. It's our job to introduce them to Jesus, to bring them to Jesus, and then let him change them. And so what I want us to see is this, this changed people aren't afraid to tell other people about who they once were. Because they're, they're new. She, she, uh, changed people are not afraid to wear their scars out open publicly. Man, this is where I sinned. This is who I was. This is the stuff I was a part of. I don't, I, 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 I'm guilty. Jesus has cleansed me. And, and you know what? If Jesus can forgive me, he can forgive you. That's what a changed person does. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, he says that he was the chief of sinners. He wrote more books of the Bible than anyone uh, in the Bible. Additionally, he planted more churches than anyone in the Bible. He also, uh, you have Jesus, perfect. You have John the Baptist, who Jesus says is the second best. And then uh, you have Paul. Like, he accomplished a lot. And then guess what he said? I'm the chief of sinners. The reality is, if you don't see yourself as the biggest sinner you know, then you don't understand yourself. You don't understand the mercy and grace of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you should stay in your sin and, and, and identify with your sin and, and, and think that your sin is, is trapped you and you're going to have to just, this is going to be the rest of your life. Absolutely not. What I'm saying is that through the magnitude that you see, uh, 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 your sin will be the magnitude that you understand God's grace. God's grace, there's more mercy and grace in Jesus than sin in you. And so she's changed because the love of Christ changed her. And she's like, if he can forgive me, he can forgive you. And so what changed people start to do, they start to tell others, hey, come, she says, come consider the claims that he makes. Come consider that he's the Christ. So they're like, all right, let's come out. Let's go see. Let's see the Christ. We're going to figure it out. So I'm convinced that, the, the, that what the church in America needs is not more information, but to actually live and experience the transformation power of the gospel. This come and see Jesus. He changed my life. And I don't need, notice she didn't get an evangelism seminary degree to go do this. She had no formal training. All she did was like, he told me he was the Christ. Guys, he's the Christ. Like that's all she did. Just read the book. Tell them what it says. And what happens? People got changed. When you rely on your personality and your strength to save people, it never works. When you rely on the tried and true gospel of Jesus, just the news, the Holy Spirit blesses it so he gets the glory and you don't. Just imagine. Some of you, you've gotten saved here. And others of you are like, how did they get saved? This guy yells at him the whole time. Yeah, it's because it's not me. We'll continue. I might go over in this service, but I'm going to try not to. Evangelism requires discipline and obedience. That's what we see next. It requires discipline and obedience. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, that's Jesus saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, uh, I have food that you do not know about. <laughs> this is great. And the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Is he like eating like food out of his pocket? You know, like, I, you know, He's eating some you know, Cheerios in his pocket. Like, what is he doing? Uh, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who has sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not? This is great. This is great. Jesus' food is to do the will of God the Father. That's his food. What he's saying is that obedience, I need us to see this, obedience to God is like a satisfying meal. What happens when you don't eat? for a little while. Some of you are like really into intermittent fasting. I'm going to do that. I'm not against you, but you just, you know, you're like, after a few weeks, I'm not hungry in the morning because you're not eating. What ends up happening if you don't eat for a while is you just stop getting hungry. But after you're doing it for a day or two days, three days, eventually what happens? You die. 
Some of you are spiritually dead because you've stopped being satisfied by doing the will of the Father. You have no appetite anymore. You're lacking fulfillment in your life because you're malnourished, spiritually speaking. Jesus says, hey, I can go without that food. Why? Because I'm doing the will of my Father. This, this will, this work, doing what Jesus' word says is more satisfying than food. You may get hungry, but you're working. You're doing the will of the Father. What I'm not saying, advocating for never eating, what I'm advocating for is to say that us doing the will of God the Father gives us a satisfaction and a nourishment at a soul level that you can't get any other way. Jesus says that if you love me, you will obey my commands. So it's imperative that the Christian be about this work of evangelism, introducing people to Jesus. And it takes discipline, means that you got to do it, and then it takes work. It's hard. It's hard work. He actually uh, likens the work to, to farming. He says it this way, uh, uh, do you not say, in verse 35, do you not say that there are yet four months and then come harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the, uh, here the saying holds true, one sows and other reaps. Yet I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and that you have entered into their labor. What he's saying is that a woman has gone before you, before you she's, she's sowing and reaping, and then you're about to go reaping the harvest because they're about to go preach the gospel and they're gonna about to see a lot of people get saved. But what I want us to see here is that Jesus is likening the, the Christian life and ministry to sowing and reaping, which takes discipline and hard work. It takes obedience. You gotta just do it. And so he's referring to sowing and reaping for harvest. If you're going to plant, sow, and in order for it to reap a harvest, what has to happen? God's got to bring rain and, and cause the growth. Same thing is true for the Christian who sow and reap by sharing the gospel. You share, you plant, you water, but guess what? God's got to cause the growth. You leave the growing to God, but you got to be about, like, if, you, if you're a farmer and you're like, I never planted anything, I never watered anything. I don't know why they have crops. You wouldn't ask that question. I don't know why I don't have crops. I didn't do anything. Christian, if you don't see people coming to faith in Jesus, it's real clear. You're not doing anything. And I'm, I don't say what I'm about to say to, to shame you. Just to give insight. There was a, a, a I believe, it, it, it's not a Barna study. It was a, a Pew Research study that said that for, for Christ, the Christians, 47% of Christians pray for non-Christians just a few times a week. 32% of Christians uh, pray for non-Christians between once and once a month. 20% of Christians never or rarely ever pray for non-Christians. So just here we see that over that, that not, not even half of Christians even pray for non-Christians, the salvation of non-Christians. Not even half, like not even half of us. That means we're not, that, that, that the team, if you're looking at the team, you're looking at the team is not just uh, San Antonio, the, the team is the nation, the globe, all Christians, like half of us even seek the power to even have the opportunity to introduce someone to Jesus. Like we don't even, we, we, we're all unplugged. 53% of the church is unplugged from the power of God. You know why, why there's not revival in our city? This is why. We're unplugged from the power of Jesus. We're not praying for non-Christians. We're not praying for their salvation. This should be an indictment on us. You're like, well, I pray every day for them. Good. You're one of the 47%. We need a whole team. Additionally, 
When, it, when, when uh, these same Christians asked about inviting a non-Christian person to church or a church program in the last six months. And many of you are new, and I don't know if you're Christian or not Christian, so I know many of you in here do invite people. But 48% of Christians said that they zero, they never invite a non-Christian person to anything church-related and in six months. So maybe twice, never if you're not willing to invite someone to church or to a, a Christian event, I guarantee you're not willing to share your faith with them. Because this is easy. It's easy. Come let that other guy offend you. It's easy. We make it really easy for you. I'll do the heavy lifting. You still got to be their friends after, and that's going to be on you. And I make me make it hard. And maybe that's why you don't bring him. You're like, I don't. He's going to say something offensive. And I got to deal with it. Yeah, you're zero. And that's why your friend's not a Christian. Some of you have brought your non-Christian friends, and you're like, they're saved. And you're like, yeah. They are. Why? Because of the God, the Holy Spirit. Number, number uh, of, 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 percentage of Christians who invite is 33% of Christians invite one or two times. See, you need to know this. The average person uh, uh, hears the gospel five or six times before they believe. You only give one or two invites. There's not even high probability yield at this point. 19%. Uh, invite non a non-Christian person three or more over the past six months. And lastly, on this, uh, when, when examined and asked how many Christians share have shared with a non-Christian how to become a Christian, look at these. 61% of Christians have never told a non-Christian how to become a Christian. If this doesn't make you weep and mourn and cry out that we're guilty and Lord save us and help us and empower us and forgive us and send us and use us, then you might not be a Christian if that doesn't wreck your soul. 61% of the team says, I'm not even going to invite someone to become a part of the team. I've never done that. I don't want you to hear this with, with shame. I want you to hear this with terror. That the souls and your sphere of influence will spend eternity apart from the presence of the living God because we did not open our mouths. We talked about Joseph in Egypt, one man led a nation. First sermon on Pentecost, Peter preached 3,000 people get saved. God needs one faithful man, one faithful woman to just pray for the, so they have power. Invite people to know Jesus. And the Holy Spirit blesses that. And when someone says, well, how do I do that? You share with them how to do that. And you're like, well, I don't, we, need a, we need a training. This girl didn't even ask for a training. She's like, I know what he did to me. He transformed me. He changed me. I'm just going to go tell him what he told me. That's all you do. That's all you do. Our job is to bring people to Jesus. It's his job to change them. 25% tell, told one, have told one or two people or one or two times in a non-Christian about how to become a Christian. 14% three or more. I get it. Some of you are very evangelistic. You're out there doing it a lot. We need the whole church to be doing this. The whole church, not just our church, but every single church in this city, every single church in this nation. We will see revival in our land at massive rates if we see that those who are Christians just simply open their mouth 
share an unedited gospel, the Holy Spirit will save and transform. Like, a, like the city you look, you should look out and think it is like your grass in your front yard right now. It's dry. You drop a match in it, the whole thing's on fire. Our city is spiritually dry. If God's people would just go open their mouths, the Spirit of God would burn like fire through the city, and, and our city would be transformed by the gospel of Jesus. I really believe that. Because see, here's what happens in closing. Our evangelism, it's our job to just bring people to Jesus, but it's his job to reveal himself and save them. Verse 39 Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. They're like, if he can save you, he can save me. Just so you know, people think that about you too. You think you're really good and awesome, and they're like, if he can save them, yeah, he can save you too. He told me all I ever did. So, so she's not ashamed of her sin anymore. She's like, I'm guilty, he cleansed me. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, to him, they asked him to stay. They're like, hey, now we need to talk to you longer. And so he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they, then they said to the woman, it is no longer because of you that we believe. For we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Bring people to Jesus, invite people to Jesus, introduce them to Jesus. And they may believe right now because if Jesus can save you, he can save them. But eventually and over time and quickly they will realize that salvation comes through Jesus alone because he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, reveals himself to them. So it's no longer because you introduce them to Jesus, it's because they realize, no, Jesus saved me. I believe, not just because of your testimony, though that did lead me to ask a lot of questions and to come to Jesus the first time, but I believe because Jesus has revealed that to me at a soul level that he is the savior of the world. It's the savior of the world. So the way we respond is simply to follow Jesus' example. Introduce people to Jesus. Tell them about the sin sacrifice of Jesus. Tell them how he saved you. Tell them how he's forgiven you. Tell them how he's given you a new life. Don't just tell them that your life is better, because it probably isn't actually. If you're following Jesus, they killed him. They might kill you too. But tell them your life is better because your sins are forgiven. Your soul is satisfied. And then let, introduce them to Jesus. Let him reveal himself to them. And let's leave lives transformed. And let's watch the Holy Spirit move in our city. Let's pray.